We're going to go ahead and get started this morning, and, and over the next several weeks, seven or eight weeks, um, we're going to be looking at who we are as a church. And if you guys have been with us for a long time, you know that we do this right around the anniversary of, of, of our anniversary, and we just go through and, and, and look at who we are. We want to know what the culture is of the church here. What do we believe in? Uh, what do we uh, stand for as a church and who we are individually as well? And we just want to go ahead and, and take a look at that. And we do it every single year. And some of you guys that have been here for a long time are like, oh, this one again. We're talking about this stuff again. But this is what Peter said in 2 Peter 1.13. He says, I think it is right. See, biblically, I got the, I got the standing here. You guys zip it. We're doing it. 2 Peter 1.13, I think it is right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. It's important that we look at this stuff again, because it's, it's so easy to become, to just forget we begin walking our, our daily lives, and if we don't hear about this, we don't read what the Word says, it's really easy to kind of just forget about it, or become jaded to it, or just kind of let it slip through. So that's why we do this every year, because it's important, and because there's many of you here that aren't here every year, and it's, it's good for you guys to hear that as well. So when we talk about who we are, we're essentially talking about our culture here at Living Hope Family Church, what we are, what we stand for, how we work together, and it's basically the behaviors and the beliefs and the characteristics of, of a particular social or ethnic or age group is what culture means. So that's what we're looking at here is the, the, those beliefs and characteristics of who make us who we are at Living Hope Family Church. And if you guys have been here a while, you guys know that our, our kind of our motto is, is to evangelize, to equip, empower. It matches up to Praise Chapel's model of, of win, build, and send. And the idea behind that is, is, is as a church, we want to do three things. We want to go out into the world and evangelize. Win people to the Lord. We want to share the love of Jesus Christ. We want to tell them that there's a God who loves them, and he loved them so much that he gave everything for them, and we want them to receive that free gift of life. But we don't want to just stop there because that's, that's actually the easy part. It's easy to get people to make a, a, a commitment quickly and a, have an emotional experience, but the, the Bible didn't just call us to make converts, it calls us to make disciples. And that's the next step is we want to equip people for their calling. Every single one of us in this room, and, and honestly, every single one of us in this city has a purpose, a plan that God has laid out for them. And we want to build people up and equip them so that they can step out into the calling that God has on their life. Because they have something that God has called them to do. But just like anything, when we want to step out, if any of you guys have had a, a, have a job, when you walked in, they didn't just give you everything you need to do and said, go about it. We all went through training, right? We had to be taught what we were doing. And the same is true in the church. We need to grow in the Lord to be effective at what he's called us to do. Amen? And then the next thing that we want to do after that, after we build people up, after we train them, we want to send them out. We want them to plant churches. We want them to go out into the mission field and be evangelists. We, we want to give people the opportunity to step out into their calling. 
And we, tr- we, we do that here as well. We've already had multiple families say, hey, we want to, we feel like God has a plan for us. We're going to do something. And we begin training. We begin putting them in positions where they can operate in their calling. We have John and Hector now helping out with the, the youth and, and their wives. And they're, they're stepping up into that, that pastoral ministry to youth as they're growing. And we have Joseph who's been beside me this entire time as he's continuing to grow. And, and, and we're going to send him out into the mission field at some point. And, and that's kind of what the, the idea is behind growing is. That's actually one of the hardest things about, about doing church right is, is it can be sad because our goal is to send people out into their ministry because we want to grow his church, amen? But today, I want to focus on... Apparently, I typed the wrong thing. We're not... People saved by grace was what we're supposed to be talking about today. Man, <laughs> preview for a coming week. <laughs> today, I want to talk about that we are a people saved by grace. We'll just go sit on the, on the blank slide. Imagine people saved by grace. That's what that says up there. <laughs> Hallelujah. This is why we don't let me hike eight miles every Saturday, because I come in on Sunday and my body and brain is just like, eh, doesn't want to work. Today we want to talk about we are a people saved by grace. That's one of the most important things that we have to understand before we can move forward in anything else in our Christian walk is that we are saved by grace. And what that means, grace in its simplest definition is grace is being given something that you didn't deserve. And the truth is we didn't deserve the salvation that we have. And God didn't owe it to us, but because he loved us, he gave it to us anyway. And as a result of being saved by grace, that means that we are made brand new. We are a new creation. We are not who we used to be. That old person that we are is dead and gone. And we've been made brand new. And it's not just about God forgetting our sin. Because if God just forgot our sin... He wouldn't be God anymore. You have to, God is a just God. And as soon as he starts acting in an unjust way, in an unrighteous way, he's no longer God. So he didn't just forget our sin, but he actually dealt with it in his son, Jesus Christ. And we got to think about it as a spirit transfer. The old spirit got kicked out and we got the spirit of Christ living inside of us. And we became born again. And this grace that we're talking about, the salvation that we're talking about, it can't be earned. It can't be bought. You can't work hard enough for it. You can't do all the right things. And in the same way, it can't be stolen away either. But even though salvation is free, you still have to receive it. And that's just the way life works when, when something's given to you, right? You know, people, there are some people that claim, oh no, you know, God chooses who he wants to save and, and only those who he chooses will be saved and those he doesn't, doesn't because if, if you have to believe for it, that means you're doing something for it. If you have to receive it, that means that you're doing something for salvation. But the truth is, is anybody ever won something on a radio station? Anybody ever won anything on a radio station? What did you have to do when you won? You had to go get it, right? You had to go pick it up. Was it still yours even while they had it? Yeah, you won it, but you still had to go get it. Now, did anybody ever say to you afterwards, like, 
man, you worked really hard for that when you drove all the way there to pick it up. That's absurd. Just because you have to receive something doesn't make it free. And it doesn't mean you've earned it. You're just accepting it. In our case, it's accepting it by faith. Hallelujah. In Luke 12, 6 through 7, he says, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. The first step to understanding that we've been saved by grace is to understand that you are valuable to God. It doesn't matter about your past, your background, where you came from, who you're friends with, where you work, how much money you have, what political affiliation you are aligned with. It doesn't matter about any of those things. God loves you for you, and you are valuable to him. Matter of fact, in in Zephaniah 3.17, it says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. And then it says, he will exalt over you with loud singing. God loves you so much that he is up and down dancing for joy. I mean, I, I, in my head, I, I get, I don't know if you read the Bible, sometimes you get weird images in your head. But when I read this, I see God up, you know, doing the whole like, like dancing around, kicking his heels together. He's singing loud because he loves you. And I'm not going to try that again because I almost just fell. So you're going to have to picture that. See, now you're going to have the image of me trying to do that in your head. But God loves you so much that he's up there just singing loudly. And he loves you and he exalts over you because you are valuable to him. And how do you know if something is valuable to somebody? The easiest way to sell if something is valuable to someone is to know if they know stuff about it. If people care about something, they know stuff about it, right? If somebody is into sports, you ever seen people that that are so into sports, they can just rattle off stats off the top of your head. They know who won, who's playing, who's doing all these things. That's because they care about sports. And I look at them like, why? I don't get it. But they care about it. And they know stuff about it. You know, if you ever have somebody that has a hobby that they really like, You know, if they like boating, then they can tell you everything about boating. If they like hunting, they can tell you everything about hunting. If they like racing, they can tell you everything about racing. Anything that somebody cares about, they can tell you about it. This is what the Scripture said. God says even the hairs of your head are all numbered. God knows everything about you, even how many hairs you have on your head. He knows it all. You know, like I always say, it is easier for him for some of you than others. But he still knows all the hair. I mean, that's how much God, he knows everything about you. That's another thing. When we, we start talking about grace and we're like, oh no, God couldn't love me if he, if he knew the things that I've done. Newsflash, God does know the things that you've done and he loves you anyway. God knew what you were going to do. He knew the things that you think are so awful that you won't even tell, tell, your, tell anybody about. God knows about them. And you know what? He still went to the cross for you. He loves you that much. You can also tell how much something means to somebody by just taking a look at their wallet. Now, I like tech stuff. I like gadgets. I like, you know, just recently I bought some of those Google Homes and some Chromecast for the house. The Google Homes are cool. (laughs) My wife went to work. So you guys know what a Google Home is? Basically, it's a little speaker that's connected to the internet, and you can say, hey, Google, and you ask it some questions. 
And it'll tell you back, or you can tell it to, to play some music, and you can do all this stuff. And, and in the morning, I get up, and I'm like, hey, Google, tell me about my day. And it goes ahead and tells me what the weather is and what's in the news. And if I got stuff planned for the day, it reminds me that I have these reminders. And my wife said, you and it's got a female voice. So my wife went to work and said, I think the only reason that he got it was so that uh, he has some woman that'll do what he says in the morning. <laughs> so... <laughs> But I like that kind of stuff. I'm a tech nerd. You see, I wear, you know, I got a Fitbit. I preach from a tablet. You know, I, I like that kind of stuff. And you can tell because I spend money on it. And then you look through my wallet book, you see, that's the stuff that I spend on. You know, and then my wife, who thinks totally different than me, she usually spends her money on other people. She's a whole lot less selfish than I am. I can tell you that. But you can look at what she's spending her money on. It's either for the kids or she just spent like pretty much the last two months of all her extra spending money to pay for my, my mother-in-law's uh, retirement party. She just saved everything and poured it into that because that's, that's what my wife cares about. And I can look at any and every one of your guys' bank records and tell you what you care about. Well, you know, if you take a look at what God has been spending. He spent his son on you. When you look at his bank account, he gave everything for you because he cares about you. Because the reality is, is that we are his joy. I mean, that's what we looked at last week was the love of Christ every step of the way on his road to the cross. And what he did is because he loves you that much. Hebrews 12.2 says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy set before him, that was you. God loves you and cares about you more than you could ever imagine. And then in 1 Peter 5, 6 through 7, he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. We have to understand, to really understand how grace works, is that God is head over heels, madly in love with you. He cares about you. He wants nothing but the best for you. And in 1 Peter here, 5, 6 through 7, it says, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And anxiety, what he's talking about, anxiety is, is just distressed by, caused by the fear of loss. Most of the anxieties that we have in our life are just caused by fear. Because we're scared something might happen and it stresses us out. Even though the, the, the acronym for fear that I like, it says false evidence appearing real. That's how fear gets worked up in our life. We, we see this, this, we begin to uh, fabricate in our minds all these terrible things that could happen and all this stuff. And, and I know I do it myself. And I have to keep that in check and like, no, take every thought captive, right? And begin to rework those things in my mind because the truth is, is that I can let some crazy stuff get going on if I'm not careful. I can tell you there's been times that, that I've been at home and, and as you guys know, Michelle works for the, the hospital, so she's on call a lot. She has to work late a lot, and particularly Thursday nights, um, she's almost always on call. But if I, if I wasn't listening or I didn't pay attention or she didn't tell me, I don't know if she's on call, sometimes I'll come home and she's not home yet. Well, the thing about what she does for work as well is when I call her because she's in surgery, she can't pick up the phone, so now I'm calling. I'm like, hey, where are you at? You know, and the, the first couple times, no big deal. She's, she's probably just working late. And then, you know, an hour goes by, and I'm like, 
man, I hope everything's all right. Well, what's going on? What's So I call back again. Obviously, she's not answering because she's in the case. And I'm like, what's going on? Why can't I get a hold of my wife? Did something happen? Did she get in a car accident on the way home? Did she, did, did, you know, all these things begin to run through my mind. And then after a couple hours, I still haven't heard from her. Then I'm really getting stressed out. I'm like, I'm getting ready to like, all right, if she doesn't call in 15 minutes, I'm calling the hospitals, I'm calling the sheriff. I'm, I'm afraid, what's going on? You know, I hope she's, what's going on? And my head begins spinning. And I have to keep reminding myself, no, you get it under control. Everything's fine. You know, and then you got that other thing in the back of your head that's like, but what if it's not? What if this is the one time that it's not okay and you're not doing anything about it? And if you would have just called, you would have known. And I have to reel that fear in. Take every thought captive. And I become anxious. And then finally, she'll give me a call back and say, sorry, babe, we had an emergency case. I had to stay late. And that's what it was the whole time. It's what it always is. Yet every single time, my head gets just crazy. That's where that anxiety comes from. But the, God says, give it to him. I don't want you to deal with that. Give it to me because I care for you so much, I'll take care of it for you. In Psalm 86, 15, he says, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You see, a Christian's confidence can rest on the fact that God is legitimately concerned with your welfare. God cares about you. Matthew 6, 25-26 says this, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? We are way more valuable and some birds in the field, and yet God takes care of them. God will take care of you. Whatever is bothering you, whatever you're going through, give it to him because he cares for you, and his love is abundant. His love cannot be exhausted. So many of us in this room, we don't go to God about things because we have deemed them too small for God to care about, but the truth is is that it's like we're concerned, like either, oh, we don't want to bother. He's too busy. Like somehow we have to get in a waiting line with God because I want you to know that God cannot be exhausted. His love cannot be exhausted. His love is abundant. It never runs out. And if you ask him to take care of something, if you cast one of your, it's not like he's going to be like too full and he can't have it. Or if, if he takes care of you, then somebody else is going to have to miss out. God has more than enough to take care of all of us. And the best part about God is, unlike most of us as parents, God doesn't get fed up. God doesn't get tired that you keep coming to him. You know, sometimes with my kids, I'm just like, oh, enough already. But God's never like that with us. Matter of fact, every time I get like that, God goes, why are you getting like that with him? Am I ever like that with you? And I have to remember. Amen. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Last week we looked at this in depth, right? About how God's love for us is unmatched and how he gave up everything. But the thing that we have to remember when we're talking about being saved by grace is that it's not about the, the idea that we somehow earned it or somehow that we have to do good enough. There's people that have told me, I invite them to church, and they're like, oh no, if I come to church, the whole place will catch on fire. 
You know, they have this idea that they're going to somehow overcome God with whatever they're, they're doing. That somehow, or there's people that, that don't want to go to church because they, in their mind, they think, you know what, as soon as I get things right with God, then I'll finally go to church. But the truth is, is that we can't make ourselves right with God. And God showed his love for us while we were still sinners. God showed his love for you well before you ever gave your life to Jesus Christ. God showed his love for you well before you ever made a decision to follow him. And he knew everything about you. While you were still a sinner, God said, I love them so much that I'm going to give my son for them to make them whole, to make them righteous, and to make them pure. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5 says, But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. John fifteen thirteen says this, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. We must be certain that we recognize that Jesus Christ gave his life for us not for after we were saved, but well before that we were saved. He didn't wait till we were living good enough on our own because had he, he would have never have went to the cross. He didn't wait till we did enough good things. He didn't wait till we walked uh, enough old ladies across the street. He didn't wait till we worked at the, 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 the homeless shelter for long enough. He didn't wait until we showed our parents how much we loved them. He didn't wait for anything. He knew everything about us, yet he gave it all up for us. He didn't do it for who we were, but actually he did it in spite of who we were. And the truth is, is that giving your life for somebody is not done flippantly. He didn't give it up without understanding the details. He knew everything. You know, for us, if we know the details, that might actually detour what we're willing to do for somebody. You know, they did a, a study once, a survey with people, and and they asked them, uh, I gave them a situation, like if this person were to be, get ready to be pushed in front of a train, would you do something to help them? And they're like, oh yeah, we'd, we'd jump down there, we'd save them. Like, well, what about if you knew this person was Jeffrey Dahmer? And they're like, oh, that's a different story. We're not saving him. You know, if, if, we know, if we don't know somebody, we're more likely to save a stranger than we are that somebody that we know and we don't like. But Jesus knew who we were, and he gave it up his life freely. And the hardest part about this kind of situation is, is when I say that, you know, Jesus loved you and he gave his life freely. We begin to view at it in this collective sense. You know, we're like, we're like, oh, that's great. God loves everybody. Oh, that's great. Jesus died for everybody. And we don't really internalize what that means for us. And D.L. Moody, who was a great preacher of of the past, he, he told us a story, this illustration that explains it perfectly. And he says, I had a friend who was like, hey, I'm reading the paper here and, and this, this multimillionaire died. And, he, and they're like, oh, that's, that's rough. That happens though. And he goes, yeah, but look, it says here that he took all of his, his money and he left it just to one person. And Dio Moody goes, oh, that's, that's great, but you know, and I'm glad that happened. And you know, someone's taken care of. And he said, I didn't really care much. So, but then he said, but wait, it says he left it to you. And he said, at the moment that it's internalized, that he left it to me, it made a difference. At the moment that I recognized that it was for me, now I cared about the old millionaire that died. Now I cared about who he left it to because he left it to me. 
And we run the danger of, of thinking the same way about the great sacrifice of Jesus Christ because we do the same thing. Oh, that's great, he died for somebody. Oh, great, he loves somebody. But if you can actually internalize that and say, no, he didn't just die for somebody, he died for you. He died for me, personally. Had I been the only one that would ever get saved, he would have still went to the cross because he loved me that much. And the same goes for every single person in this room. He loves you. Amen? In John 3, 3, he says, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So the next part that we have to look at after we recognize his great love for us I'm hitting buttons, sorry guys. But after we recognize his great love for us, we, have to, we, we can begin to see what he actually did for us. Because it doesn't make any sense otherwise. That's why the scripture says that the cross is foolishness to those who, who don't believe. Because it doesn't make any sense. Why would somebody send a son? Why would somebody die for me? But if we can begin to understand that he loves us that much, then we can begin to see what the process looks like, and what he actually did for us. We can understand what he's done in us. So it says, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless once one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And if you remember this part of the Bible, Nicodemus had some problems with this. He's like, born again, that doesn't even make any sense. This word here, <clears throat> unless one is born again, the other, that can also mean unless one is born from above is how it can be translated. And Nicodemus, he's confused. How can one be born again? He's thinking about it in the natural, right? And, uh, you know, there's, there's some moms here that have had big babies, and they're like, you know, seven, eight pounds, that's enough for me. Can you imagine a 180-pound man trying to be born again? It's not something you can look forward to, I don't suppose. But that's what Nicodemus is thinking. He's like, born again? I mean, that doesn't make any sense. That's not even possible. Would my mom even want to do it? And he can't figure out what Jesus is trying to say. But it's because he was looking at it in the natural. Instead of, and what he's talking about is that, that we have to have a new spirit placed and something has to change inside of us. There has to be a supernatural transformation if you want to be born again, if you, if you want to make it to the kingdom of heaven. And what he's saying is, is that you can't live good enough because that's not a transformation. You have to be made brand new. We have to be born again. We have to start over. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have gone. Behold, new things have come. We're brand new, perfect in him. And the reason why that's so important is because we can't pretend to be new. You can't just slap a fresh coat of paint on us and be good to go. I mean, if any of us were ever looking through the newspaper and we were to see this beautiful car, it looked gorgeous, Brand new paint job, you know, and like a like a, a a '68 Stingray Corvette. That's my favorite body style of any vehicle. Those late '60s Corvettes, those Stingrays. And uh, if you saw that in the paper, somebody says "brand new," we'd all be like, "There's no way that's brand new. That car was made in 1968. You may have put a, a a fresh coat of paint on it, but it's not brand new." Nobody would be fooled by that. 
And that's not what God was looking for either. He wasn't looking for a fresh coat of paint. He wasn't looking for, for just a life lived in a certain way. Something inside of us had to be changed. We had to be made brand new. We had to come fresh again from the factory. We had to get rid of that past that was behind us. And a birth involves no past. When a baby is born... It has no background. It has no history. It has no baggage. It has no guilt. It has no shame. It's not worried about the things that it did because it has no past. Did you know that that's how Adam was born? Adam was the only grown man that didn't have a past. He was made as a man and he had no past. And that's what being born again is about, is being restored to just like Adam, where you have no past. What about the stuff that I did? As far as God's concerned, you have no past. That is as far as the east is the west is from you. You are brand new. It's gone. It's done with. You have no past. You're like a baby with no baggage. Nothing to be guilty of. Nothing to be concerned over because Jesus Christ has made you brand new. And that's the reason why that there's not a man or woman on this planet. <laughs> Sorry. She put a big red ball on her nose back there and distracted me. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> but there's not a man or woman alive <laughs> that goes to hell because of the things that they've done. One of the things that frustrates me the most is when people stand out, so-called Christians stand out on the street with their big signs saying that, you know, homosexuals are going to hell or, or abortionists are going to hell or all these people are, are going to hell because of what they're doing. The truth is, is none of them are going to hell for what they're doing. They're going to hell because they didn't receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Now I pray that they would do that, receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior because ultimately that would influence what they're doing. But they're not going to hell because of those things. Nobody is. Sin has been dealt with while we were yet sinners. He came and took care of sin. He dealt away with the body of sin. And Romans 5.10 says, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. This is it talking about not only are we, are we reconciled to God by His death and His Son, that's where our sins are forgiven, that's where that body of sin is dealt with. The, the Scripture says that He puts sin to death. So we're reconciled, we are, our, our, our balance is set clean because of that. But not only that, much more so are we reconciled and being saved by His life. You see, the, the death of Jesus Christ made the balance even. You know, it brought us up to, we're no longer in the red. But how many of that doesn't make a difference if you keep going overspending, right? Have you ever, have you ever seen somebody that, that has filed for bankruptcy? And that goes ahead and that clears their debt. They're back at a zero balance. But if they don't change the way that they're living their life, if they don't change, if something in them doesn't change and they keep spending like they've been spending, they just go right back down into debt. They just go right back into the same problem that they had before. And that was what the, the, the issue with what the law was. The law kept, they would do their sacrifices, they'd bring their balance back up to zero, and then as they continued to live their life, they kept going back into debt. But Jesus Christ came and made it so that we are never going back into debt. Or something inside of us has changed. We are being made brand new. 
And we didn't just deal with the symptom, but Jesus dealt with the issue, the underlying issue. And by his life, we are now saved. Let me read you some scriptures that talks about if God was willing to die for you to show the amount of love that he had for you as a sinner, how much more so we're justified by now in his life. And there's, the reality is that there is a wrath to come, but believers are not subject to it because we've been made new in his son. John 5.24 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says, And to wait for a son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Romans 8.1 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Four different scriptures that showed that by his life we have been saved. We have been made, we've been called out of that who we were, and we are now something new. In Acts 18, 13, 38 through 39, it says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed from the law of Moses. Forgiveness is necessary. Forgiveness is good. But it's not enough. Being forgiven will never be enough to remove us from the bondage of sin and death. That, that's the control that Satan has over our lives. The influence. that he, Forgiveness will never free us from that. We need something more. We need to be made brand new. We need to be born again. And it says here, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Through him, we are finally free from sin. We're talking about who we are as a church. Today, we're talking about who we are as individuals in the church. When Jesus works that free gift inside of us, and that's the thing is we're not just forgiven, but we are free. We are so much more for, than forgiven that it blows my mind every time I think about it because forgiveness would be so good. That would, be, that would almost be enough for me if God would just forgive me, but he said, I'm not stopping there. I'm moving forward. I'm going to change something fundamentally about you that you can finally live your life free from sin, this, this bondage that is trying to tear you down. In Romans 7.15, Paul said this when he was talking about his life before he got saved. He says, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. That was the problem with the law, is that they were forgiven, but then they still did the very thing that they hated. But the great news about Jesus Christ inside of you is you finally have the power to resist. You finally have the power to say no. And I realize that in our lives there are still times that we fall. 
There are times that we stumble. There are times that an old self who we used to be rears its ugly head and tries to get a foothold again. But that's why we remember that we are free. We do well to remember that, that we are no longer in subjection to the devil. He has no rights or authorities other than what we give him. Now, how many know that's good news? Paul said, I do the very things that I hate. Now we get to say that we finally are able to resist because of the new life that we have inside of us. In Colossians 2, 10 through 12, it says, And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, and which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Here it says, And you have been filled in him. If you look at the New American Standard Version, it translates it like this. And in him you have been made complete. Isn't that good news? That in him that we are made complete? And did you know that completeness is not reliant on how you feel? Did you know that? Anybody ever have times they still go, they don't feel complete? Sometimes I don't feel complete. Sometimes I don't feel like things are right. Sometimes I don't feel like I'm walking in victory. Sometimes I don't feel like that I'm whole. But I thank God that none of those things are dependent on how I feel. Man, if I listened to my feelings, I'd be in a mess. Sometimes i got to tell my feelings to shut up. This is what God says about me. God says that I am complete. God says that I have been filled in him. No, God says that I am forgiven. No, God says that I am victorious. You see, the law, when they, the, the mark of the, uh, of the law, the Abrahamic covenant was circumcision of the flesh. But the mark of the covenant that we have, a, the, the better covenant is what Paul says with Jesus Christ, is we have a circumcision of a heart. The scripture says that the, 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 the heart made of stone was removed and it's been replaced with a heart made of flesh. That old body of flesh who we used to be has been cut off and removed and we are given a brand new life. Here it says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. That's what baptism is actually all about. We talk about getting baptized. It's, it's through faith how we are, are, are placed under the water. It's like when Jesus was buried in that tomb. That's why when we do baptism, we do full water baptism because nobody ever got buried when they were dead with a sprinkle of dirt. They're put fully underneath the ground. But then he goes on to say, you are buried with him in baptism, but you are also raised up with him through faith. That's what we talk about when you get put under the water, you're buried with him. But how many know we don't leave you there? Some of you, maybe I wanted to, but instead... We went ahead and we pulled you out, believing in faith that you were a brand new person. Because if you weren't, we were putting you back in. But we, you raise up out of the water a brand new person. You're saved with him through the powerful working of God. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead, the scripture says, is alive inside of you. 
Amen. We died with him, but we have been raised to a brand new life. And this is done through faith. We trust that he died for us. We died with him. And then we were raised to a brand new life. Titus 2.14 says, Who gave himself, this is Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good work. You have been redeemed from all lawlessness. You've been redeemed from all the stupid stuff that you've done. You've been redeemed from all that stuff that you're ashamed to tell anybody about. And you have been purified. If nothing else, when you leave here today, if you've been unsure about it, remember that when you leave today, that you are clean. You are forgiven. You are holy. You have been made pure. Jesus did these things inside of you. And I recognize that when we live our lives, it takes, sometimes it takes a little while for our bodies to catch up with what has happened inside of us. Sometimes it takes a little while. But even if you're falling, even if you just keep moving forward, you only fail if you don't get back up. You only fail if you don't keep walking forward and your life is beginning to change. I am not perfect. I still do all kinds of stupid. But the reality is, is that every day I'm getting better. I am becoming closer on the outside to who I am on the inside. One who is pure. Us being pure is the greatest proof that Jesus Christ lives inside of us. Because the Scripture says that there is no, uh, there can be no mixing of darkness and light. Whenever the light shows up, the darkness has to go. The darkness is, is dead. And that means that, that for Jesus to come and live inside of us, there can't be any darkness in us because the two can't coexist. And then the Scripture goes on and says that He did it for Himself. He loved us so much that He gave up everything so that we could be with Him. He did it for because we are His own possession, a people for Him. And then it says that we should be zealous for good works. You know, the natural reaction to having your life changed like that is to begin to live for Him, to begin to show. If, if you have an understanding of what God has accomplished in your life, the natural reaction is to love people. The natural reaction is to forgive people. The natural reaction is to be generous. The natural reaction is to be loving. The natural reaction is to be caring. That's what pours out when somebody has done so much from you. That pours out of you as well. That's one of the, the greatest things that you can do if you're struggling in your Christian walk is not begin to write down a list of all the things that you should do better. Instead, begin to spend time in your word. Begin to renew your mind with what he said about you. Begin to, begin to take note of, instead of writing the stuff that you shouldn't do, begin to write down the stuff that God did do inside of you. Write those things down. And remember those things, and you'll notice that as a, a natural byproduct, you'll just begin to live the way that God says you are when you finally begin to learn what God says you are. That's what it says here. We are, we are, are saved for good works. But we've got to make sure that we're not putting the cart before the horse. We do good works because we're saved. We don't get saved because we do good works. Amen? But He saved us and He made us a people for Himself because He loved us. 
Romans 3, 21 through 24, it says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. That's just saying right there that, that through Jesus, righteousness has come through him apart from the law. That means that, that uh, he is separate from the law. But the reality is that the law and the prophets bear witness to him. If you read the, the Old Testament, if you read the law, everything points to Jesus. Even the law itself was a type and shadow of what Jesus would be and, and who he would come to be. And the righteousness of God, verse 22, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. All you have to do is believe and you have his righteousness. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Here he says that there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Just some some simple math if we go through that. All have sinned, all fall short. And the wages of sin is death. Therefore, all of us are deserving of death. There's no way around that. Except for God sent his son to pay that price for us. God took a step off the throne and paid that death for us. And as a result, we are justified by His grace. What did I say grace was earlier? The simple definition is is getting something that you don't deserve. As a gift, we receive it freely through the redemption of His Son, Jesus Christ. You know, God didn't lower His standard to make sure that we could get into heaven. He didn't lower His standard to make sure that we could live eternally alongside of Him. Had he done so, he would no longer be God. But instead, he upheld righteousness. He upheld justice by paying the penalty himself for us. And the righteousness of God is manifest inside of us because of his Son. In Romans eleven five through 6, it says, So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would not be grace. This is just pointing out the important thing here that, that this is a free gift. We are saved. That's what we called this message today, right? Who are we as a church culturally? We are a people who are saved by grace. And that means that it's no longer on the basis of works. And that's good news. Because none of us could work hard enough to make up for the, our shortcomings. Grace is getting something that you do not deserve. And we also hear about God's mercy as well. And the easy, simple definition of mercy is that that is not getting something you do deserve. So in his mercy, we didn't get the death that we do deserve, but in his grace, we got the new life that we didn't deserve. Hallelujah. But it's no longer on the basis of works. Because if it was, then we would have the right to boast about it. Could you imagine being in heaven? Like, what'd you do to get in here? Oh, uh, you know, I did this. I went down and worked in the soup kitchen, dished out a bunch of soup, and, uh, you know, I made sure that uh, I gave all my extra money to the poor, and, oh, that's nothing. I worked at the homeless shelter every day. And then, could you imagine the one person, like, what did you do to get in here? He's like, well, I just, um, I volunteered at my church every Sunday, and I don't know, you should be in here. Can you imagine people talking about each other? 
you pointing fingers like that's that's what god's trying to get away with so you couldn't boast about how you got in there because there's nothing that we could do to do so in the first place in acts 16 30 through 31 and we're going to end here it says and then he brought them out and said sirs what must i do to be saved and they said believe in the lord jesus and you will be saved you and your household to receive this free gift of salvation, it requires nothing more than to accept the free gift. You have to get off your butt and drive to the radio station to pick up your free gift. And we do that by faith. We do that by just saying, yes, I receive it. You are my Lord. You are my Savior. And we believe that he died for us. We believe that he paid the penalty for us. And we believe that he rose again. Amen? Now, I think I know everybody, everybody in here is saved, right? So this is a, a message that, that I hope you were taking notes because this is where you can begin to minister to this to your friends, to your family who aren't saved. That's where it's good to have this stuff. Even if That's why Peter said, I'm okay with stirring you up by way of reminder because even if you already know this, it'll be good for you to share it with somebody else. Amen? Let's go ahead and stand to our feet and we'll close the service.